Tonight, we're in Job. We actually start a new genre tonight. We're not going to go too much into genre. I think we're going to save that for another night, um, understanding the genre. This is the wisdom poetry. So we got done with the history genre. So far, we've looked at law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, which is known as the Pentateuch or law. Um, And now we finished the history, which starts in the book of Joshua and ends all the way to Esther. And remember, that is the history of the Old Testament, which means everything else was either written... Um, or takes place during that time. Esther's kind of the end there. Really, Nehemiah's even much more the end of Old Testament history. So all your prophets, all your wisdom literature, at some point takes place through uh, what we see in Joshua uh, to Nehemiah for the most part. Okay. <clears throat> so let's look at the context of the book of Job. Uh, the story told in the book of Job probably takes place sometime even before Abraham was born. Uh, but it wasn't written down until after the Exodus. Not until after the Exodus. So Moses <clears throat> very well could be the author, but we don't really know. I, in, in my estimation, I just envision uh, when, when Moses was on Mount Sinai with the Lord, and at some point in time during that fellowship with the Lord, the Lord said, let me tell you about my servant Job. That's my guess. I don't know. I have no idea uh, but we know it takes place in the land of Uz, not in the land of Oz, but in the land of Uz, uh, which was most likely in northern Arabia. Uh, so that's the context um, theme. Okay, theme's going to be a little bit different tonight because Job actually causes us to ask a, a whole bunch of questions. Um, it really does. And I want us to kind of examine the questions that it causes us to ask before we get to the actual theme. So this is kind of the outline of the night. We're going we're gonna to know what questions it causes us to ask. We're going to look at the actual theme of the book. We're going to walk through the theme of the book. Then we're going to come back to the questions, okay? Um, And so it asks some difficult questions that we have here. Why do the righteous suffer in the same way as the unrighteous? That is a big question in the book of Job. Why Why do the righteous suffer in the same way as the unrighteous? We might be tempted to think that evil people suffer and godly people are rewarded with ease, comfort, and riches. But you live a little and you know that that is simply not the case. Many wicked people seemingly go unpunished in this world and many upright people suffer all the time. So how then do we explain why the righteous suffer? And perhaps, more importantly, how do the righteous handle it and conduct themselves when they suffer? So why do the righteous suffer in the same way as the unrighteous? How do the righteous handle it and conduct themselves when they do suffer? So two things are even assumed right there, right? The first thing is this, that God is sovereign, and he ordains everything whatsoever that comes to pass in his universe. And the second thing is, God is good, loving what is right and hating what is evil. The problem is that these two things don't seem to jive together when the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper. That's the problem. We, we think either God is not control of the universe after all, and, and chaos or blind fate, dumb luck and change, they all rule the world. Or perhaps God doesn't just care about the morality and ethics of his creatures. Perhaps God is fatalistic, or worse, he doesn't know good from evil, or still worse, he actually favors evil over good. That's a 
real problem, right? So by the end of the book, those difficult questions, they're, they're not answered for us in, in the way we'd like for them to be, which is a nice, neat little formula, right? That's what the human heart desires is give me the A plus B equals C. Um, no, that, that's not how they're answered. Uh, there's no simple answer for these colossal issues. Still, they are dealt with in a powerful way and even in a very humbling way in the book of Job. So we can summarize, now we get to the theme, the book's resolution to these issues this way. This is the theme. Does somebody want to read that for me, the theme? really would like to take a sip of water. It's right there at the bottom. Summary of the book's resolution to these issues right under that in italics. God is completely... Thanks, buddy. (laughs) God is completely sovereign over all the affairs of his universe for his own glory. But God, some, uh, but sometimes his motives, reasons, and goals behind what he does are not revealed to us. He knows them, but we are not always privy to them. The thing to do, then, is to humbly submit to his sovereignty, not to grumble against it. We are never to shake our fists at God nor question his wisdom and goodness, as though we could run the universe better than he. Nevertheless, hope in the suffering of the righteous is found... Uh, in a future resurrection and in a redeemer. All right, so as I said, what, I, I kind of like the thing about Job that it doesn't really give you some simplistic, easily grasped cliche of an answer. Um, but we do know that there is, and hear this, there is no one-to-one correspondence between evil and suffering, nor is there between righteousness and reward this side of heaven, Okay. Uh, these issues, they are complicated, right? They are sticky. I mean, by show of hands, how many in here have dealt with something like this where somebody questions, they look around the world and they either question, how can this God be sovereign or how can he be good? Have you ever encountered a topic like that from somebody? Yeah. Right. Well, Job is, the, is one of the perfect books that helps us unpack that question, not necessarily am- answer in a simplistic way, but really unpack that. Job deals with them in a very realistic way. They are troubling, and don't downplay that. They are difficult issues. They can't just be swept aside by some sort of dogmatic affirmations. They have to be addressed soberly and seriously, humbly, reverently, and sensitively. The book of Job does handle them, though. We know that because there's real suffering in the book, and there are several wrong-headed attempts to resolve that issue. It's not... It's not until God finally speaks at the end that a bit of clarity is brought to this haze of confusion that you're all looking at me with confused faces right now. So we should expect that, though, shouldn't we? Right? Listen, a vision of the Almighty and, and who the Almighty is really should put everything into focus for us. Nonetheless, we are still real people who still live in a real world with real sufferings every day. That's one of the things that makes Jesus such a Savior indeed, isn't it? That he didn't deal with our sufferings, get this, in some sort of abstract or philosophical formula, did he? He entered into our experience. He suffered with us. And from that position, as an insider, experiencing everything we experience, did he arise and become our great high priest who can identify and empathize with us. Yes, indeed. So this gives us confidence. We can't approach him in our time of need 
knowing that in him we will find mercy and grace as one who can sympathize with all of our sufferings. But I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? We've got to come back to Christ before we're done with the day, sure. But let's go ahead now and dive into the theme text in the book. And I, I've got them, you kind of have them written out. And so even if you want to go ahead and start turning to places and think, I'm going to do this one, the quicker you can do that, the quicker we can assure that we can move on to Psalms next week. So that will be helpful, okay? All right, so as with any book, the best way to understand what's going on in Job is to understand the flow of thought. That's why the outline right there with pivotal text is very, very helpful for you. Um, What most people know about Job takes place in Job chapter 1 and 2 and then in 40 and beyond. The rest of it, and that's, guys, that's 38 chapters, 38 chapters of really what we would call just extended speeches and monologues. That's why it's in the wisdom poetry genre. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons, okay? Um, So it's got a long extended speeches by various characters, so it becomes easy to get lost and wonder what one speech has to do with the others and where in the world is this book going. But, But hopefully that outline will help you understand what's going on. What's the story? Well, here's the story in case you don't know it. It goes like this. Satan is granted permission by God to strike Job, who is a righteous man, not a sinless man, but a man of integrity, and he loses his wealth, family, and health. Then three of Job's friends come to talk with him about what's going on and what Job ought to do. And then a fourth friend comes and adds his two cents. And finally, God himself weighs in on the discussion. And by the end of the book, Job has everything restored and then some. You ready to dive in? Amen. You sound pumped. Let's do it. (laughs) You'll notice that the first section describes the calamity that befalls Job in chapter 1 and 2. We'll come back to that. But then it starts getting really kind of confusing. In chapters 3 through 14, there's this discussion going on. And the formula always is the same. Job speaks first, and then each of his friends speak. Job responds to each of his friends, and then the next friend speaks. And it goes on repeat. Basically, to help you get an understanding of the direction of the conversation, what's happening is Job's friends all believe that Job must have done something wrong to invite this disaster upon him. Okay? So somebody start us off with Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, and then somebody right after that read Job 5, 17. Stop and think, do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those plants trouble and cultivate evil harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in the blast of the danger. Okay, that's so great, right? Because you know, like, it, this, this makes me feel like it is very early in the book. That this guy has not really been around life all that long. Because that first question, whoever perished being innocent? No one, but the problem is not because they, you know, anyways. Um, it, we'll move on. 517. Behold now how happy is the man who got reproved. All right, so this is uh, Eliphaz talking. Um, And Job's two other friends, they're going to agree with these conclusions in the first round of discussion. Okay? You see, these guys, they've got a mechanical and kind of like an automatic view of the universe. They're saying the only reason that calamity happens um, is because the victims of the calamity must have sinned in some way to bring on this calamity, and they're getting their reward. Okay? So somebody go ahead and read chapter 8, verses 3 through 7. Does, does God subvert judgment 
Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. All right, so Job's urged to what? To repent of what he's done, right? However, Job maintains that he's innocent, and this particular instance is not the result of some of his sins. Something else has to be going on than what we typically do with this simplistic one-to-one correspondence between sin and suffering. Someone go ahead and read that text in chapter 10 now. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. It is right for you indeed to oppress, to reject to the labor of your hands and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked. Have you eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal? Are your years as a man's year, years? That you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Hmm. Okay, so uh, that's kind of the first section. And we move on to chapters 15 through 21. And Job's friends decide, well, it's time for round two. Let's have another go at it. And Job is going to defend himself again. Uh, his friends say that his words, again, are profitless and hollow. In fact, that's what we see in chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Someone want to take that? A wise man wouldn't answer with an empty mock. You are nothing but a windbag. The wise don't engage in empty chatter. What good are such words? What did he call them again? Windbag. Mine has east wind. That's nice. Windbag. <laughs> they come with the fire here. Um, so all right. Here. <laughs> we'll, call, we'll call somebody a windbag tomorrow. There all right. Go. Um, go, uh, go, someone go ahead and, and look at uh, chapter 21 before that again. In this round of discussion, remember Job's insisting that he's right and they're wrong. So 21 34. How then comfort you me in vain, seeing in your answers there remain a falsehood? So, I mean, look, you, you've been in an argument before, right? Right? I'm sure you've never been in an argument where each side demands and says that they're right. Jason, smart man, shaking his head now. Because she's always right, right? Okay, good. All right. All right, so now we move on to chapters 22 through 26. And finally, they're in their last round of discussion, okay? Job's friends, if you can really even still call them friends at this point, uh, say he has to be hiding something. Look at Job 22, 12 through 14. Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. You say, what does God know? Can he judge through the thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for him, so he cannot see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Okay, and so they conclude to urge him to repent. That's what it says in verse 21 of chapter 22. Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace, thereby good will come to you. And I love the book of Job because it just destroys the prosperity gospel and and so many ways. Like we, we think just at the beginning, obviously, but 
constantly this book. It's almost as it lays it on thick um, that it's not what you do that brings blessings to you, right? Um, over and over and over and over and over again, it lays that on. But Job still, even in this point, is saying he's righteous. Someone read chapter 23, 11 and 12. Alright, so that's the third round discussion. We can move on to chapter 27 through 31. And Job's going to kind of end the discussion with his friends by concluding. Alright, we're at a dead end here, butting heads. We just Let's just say this. Whatever God is doing here, mortal man can't figure it out. We, we, just, we don't know. In fact, that's what we learn in chapter 28 verses 12 through 13. Who wants to take that one? But where can wisdom be found? All right, and then uh, 28, 20 through 24. But do people know where to find wisdom? Where can they find understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all humanity. Even the sharp eyes of birds in the skies cannot discover it. Destruction and death say, you've heard all the rivers of where wisdom can be found. 24. God alone understands the way of wisdom. He knows where it can be found. Where he looks throughout the whole earth and sees everything through the heavens. Alright, so, so Job's at the end of himself now, right? He, he's, he's almost just given up. I don't, know, I don't know how to figure this out. My friends are certainly not helping in any way, shape, or form. But then comes really one of the most underrated characters in all of Scripture. Um, and I... I hate it for him because he's stuck at, at the end of this long discourse. So if you ever have read through Job and your Bible reading plan, by the time you get to chapter 32, you're like, my goodness. It's just like watching an argument that's not fun, right? Like the great chiropractor debate of Mother's Day 2018 uh, when my brother and I got into the necessity of, uh, of the chiropractor and, um, and just argued the like literal entire day. Like neither one of us could drop it and... Uh, we were bad sons. It kind of ruined Mother's Day for everybody. Um, but I was right. Uh, anyways, um, I'm not going to tell you what side I was on. Uh, you probably know. But uh, the fourth friend shows up, and, and, and at that point, when you're, you're kind of reading this, you're just tired. Like, stop arguing already. But then Elihu comes up, okay? And Elihu's really a John the Baptist. Like, he really is this type of level character. In fact, I believe he's an Old Testament representation of what we see the messenger come forth uh, because when he gets on the scene, he's not happy with anybody. Like he's, he's not. In fact, go ahead and, and turn to chapter 32 and someone read the first three verses. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Really well done with the Barachel, the, the Buzite. Oh, man, good so confidence. Anybody want to challenge that? And thinks that. All right. Great. Now, yeah. So here's, here's the problem. Elihu believes there's far too much navel-gazing going wrong. There's far too many pointing at Job going on and not enough looking at God. Uh, that's his issue. So what he does... 
fitting with the rest of the book, he says, I'm going to give you four monologues here. And those monologues are going to be on the greatness of God's justice and his mercy, which are far beyond human comprehension and understanding. He then challenges Job to consider that his sufferings, get this, may in some way be a loving act of God. Somebody read 3713. You're over two tonight, Sonia. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Sonia. You read that one. Just that Whether for correction or for the land or for mercy. So that which God does to punish some is actually loving towards others. Finally, then, Miss Debbie, he concludes with this in chapter 37, verses 23 through 24. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. I suppose it was you then, Miss Dawn. Okay. Okay. It's not like you're sitting together. It's okay. No, thank you so much. So, okay. Now we're waiting. It's been 37 chapters. Two of them had stuff that weren't monologues. The rest of them had monologues. Um, now, Every one of those monologues are an errant, infallible word of God and are profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. Uh, but we're, we've had 37 chapters of men talking, obviously the Spirit-inspired. Uh, and then finally, chapter 38, God himself comes to discussion. And I like that because there's been 37 chapters of a lot of accusations, a lot of questions going on, a lot of things been made. What will the Almighty say? We start reading in chapter 38, verses 1 through 4. I'll read this one. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. I just I would stop there. I, I'm not going to stop there. But I want to. Uh, and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And the mic was dropped. Not that he needed a mic, right? That first question just started right there. It was an absolute knockout blow, right? If you have kids that are fully dependent upon you, <laughs> you thought that too? Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, this is the, I brought you into the earth. Uh, I can take you out. Uh, no. Uh, but this is a knockout blow. Joe doesn't have, he doesn't have a leg to stand on with the Almighty. He's done. No ground whatsoever for a complaint. Why? Because he's not God. That's the problem. Suddenly, he realizes that he's contending with things far bigger than himself and far greater than he realized. But the Lord's not done. The questions keep on coming. Verse 5. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Sarcasm from the Lord, by the way. Uh, or who stretched the line upon it? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Down to verse 22. <clears throat> i got to turn pages. 22, have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail? Verses 31 through 35. I said hail, by the way. It sounded like I was like a country preacher that was saying hail. It wasn't. That was actual hail, like coming down. Okay, 31 uh, through 35. Can you bind the cluster? Of the Pleiades, that's not good. Or lose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? 
Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here, are, here we are? Just, just amazing. I'm not going to read all verses 19 through 27, but it's, it's there. You get the point, right? Job ain't competing with that. He can't compete with that. That's the point. Now, when Job realizes who he's dealing with, he realizes also how small he himself is. Somebody read Job 40, verses 1 through 2. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Mm. All right, that's, that's basically in a gist with what God's saying to Job, right? So, this exposition of God's majesty takes place all the way to the end of chapter 41, and I, I, would, just, I would just encourage you to read Job 38 through 41 sometime. Obviously, read the entire book. It is great. But chapters 38 through 41, it, it's, it's very healthy for us to read passages uh, in, the, in extended texts like this that really extol God for His greatness, right? And if we do, perhaps we'll end up responding like Job responded in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Anybody want to read that? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. All right, so it's Job's response here, right? He's utterly and completely humbled. Is it interesting to you to point out that in everything that the Lord just said in chapters 38 through 41, Job's questions are not answered, and neither are ours, right? Rather, we're exhorted to put our hands over our mouths and stop wagging our tongues as though we could providentially govern the universe better than God can. The, the affairs of the universe are quite simply far too great for us, and we're, uh, we'd do a lot better to reverently fear a God who is so sovereign and powerful than to bicker with this God when we feel our lot in life isn't as good as it should be. We don't know what God is doing in every work of his providence. And, and he's in no way actually beholden to us to have to explain himself or to give an account of himself all the time, nor is he any time, really. So, okay, that's a summary of the book. Now let's close with some of those issues we brought up earlier and dive a little bit deeper. Is that okay? We got time? Yeah. Good. If God is sovereign and good, which is our first question, why are bad things happening to Job, who's described in chapter 1, verse 1, as blameless and upright? Or, let's even take a big step back and ask another question. If God is sovereign and good, why do bad things happen to anyone? It's quite a tension. If God were really good, why doesn't he prevent bad things from happening? And In fact, if God is sovereign, is he not only allowing bad things to happen, but actually positively causing bad things to happen? 
If that were the case, would that mean that he isn't actually good after all? Or, or maybe he's just not sovereign and he really can't do anything about the bad things that happen in our world. Well, these are, these are not just philosophical questions. These are questions that come from real life experiences. and They need to be understood because everyone either has, does, or will suffer. That's just the inevitable experience of everyone who lives in this world. Now, granted, some experience it more than others, but, but all suffer in one way or another. Everything is not always just right. So, so it's important that such things about God and suffering be addressed. We can thank God that he's given us this book to steer us in the right direction of thought. So let's jump back into the text really quickly and address this dilemma. First, two preliminary things. The first is this. God is good. The Bible's clear on this. No one really disputes it. In fact, you look at Job chapter 34. I know I said 1 and 2, but I'll read these. 34 verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. Verse 12. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. There are just a plethora of other texts we don't have time to look at affirming the goodness and justice of God. He only does that which is righteous. He never does what is evil. So, like I said, no one really contends with that. The issue then becomes, okay then, is God really sovereign? But before we address that, there's a second preliminary point in chapter 42 of Job, verse 7. Here's what that says. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Eliphaz, I don't know where that came from, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. What I want you to notice from this verse is that the Lord has said that Job has said the right things about God in this book. Now, whether or not Job has said the right things about himself at this point is really up in the air, but he has said the right things about God. Whereas, Job's three friends were wrong about God. And what was it that they said? They said God caused calamity to come upon people for one simple reason only. They must have sinned. All one needs to do is repent and God will take away the trouble. That's what they've been saying. Those are wrong things about God. They thought there was, again, a one-to-one correspondence between sin and suffering as though God only existed to respond to man's ethical failings. As though he's just a cop who provides this like, moral balance to the universe. But the solution between God's sovereignty and suffering is not simply solved with this neat and nice little one-to-one correspondence. If you do wrong, you get punished. That's it. That's where trouble and calamity in this world come from. So let's now see what Job has said about God, and maybe we'll do better in Job's friends in understanding this. All right, so now we're in chapter 1. Let's start with verse 8. Someone read Job 1 8. And 
The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Okay, so who initiates this conversation with Satan? What is about to happen is Yahweh's plan, not Satan. Okay? At any rate, Satan responds with what? Somebody read verses 9 through 11 for me. Then Satan Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So in the following verses, Job loses his property, his children, to raiders and natural disasters. Now, let's read Job's response to the sudden sudden life-altering Disasters. What does he say in verse 20? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He did what? Worshipped. He didn't complain or, or grumble. Rather, verse 20 says he worshipped. And then he says that the Lord, verse 21, has taken these things away. <laughs> He, he doesn't say that there's some kind of wicked force outside of God that God cannot control as though there were two sovereigns in the universe, one good and one evil, and God just can't really seem to get the upper hand on the evil. In fact, throughout chapters 1 and 2, Satan had to get permission from God before he could do anything at all. So whatever Satan's evil plans might be, God has him on a leash. Now look at the writer's commentary on what Job said in verse 22. Somebody read that for me. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Okay, so so he's saying that God was, was doing nothing wrong by striking Job like this. Job is indeed right to say God did it. And in the next chapter, more calamity befalls Job. He, he gives him this advice in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is, is, by the way, still advice some give today. They say it's it's therapeutic for you to get angry with God. Is that wise? Well, what does Job say in verse 10? But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Notice, Job's again, he's confirmed in his accuracy, right, Uh, about God's sovereignty. By saying Job did not sin in what he said, the writer is saying that Job is not wrong. Indeed, both good and trouble come from the hand of the same God. In fact, he makes a lot of statements like this. I've got footnotes that I could share with you, but we don't have time. So we're really back to where we started. God is good, and God is sovereign. As we've already seen, God tells Job that the mystery of his providence is too great for Job to grasp. What's more significant, then, is how one is to handle themselves in such times. Instead of pointing fingers and shaking fists at God or throwing off one's faith, we're called to trust God at those times. Like Job, we should worship this powerful, 
creator that we've just seen described himself in chapters 38 through 41. We should not respond like Job's wife suggested. Rather, we should respond, chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Job will trust God no matter what. Again, as we saw, Job also learned the element of humility by the end, certainly. But all the while, Job is never told why this has all happened. Nor does he ever find out about the discussion between God and Satan in chapter 1 and 2. And in the same way, friends, we don't always know what God is doing, nor do we know why. But faith tells us that he is indeed doing it, that he is indeed good, and that we can indeed trust him. So is that all we're left with? Are we just left with God's sovereignty over all things and we're supposed to say, Oh, well, that's how it goes. I guess it's just beyond my understanding. I'll just have to live with calamity in the universe governed by a good God. Doesn't make sense, but I guess that's all we've got. All right, I'll be honest. On one hand, yeah, a little bit, right? Uh, We are to trust the governance of the universe to God and not think ourselves wiser than He. (coughs) However, there's one more thing to the story here in chapter 19, verses 25 through 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job believes that there will be a resurrection. Did you hear that? Verse 25, this resurrection will in some way be accomplished by some Redeemer. That's Job's only hope in this entire situation. Uh, Though uh, things seem in balance for now, he knows that they will not always be. Job knows that someday, even after he dies in his flesh, we will see God and all will be right. Teaches us in the future resurrection, we have our hope too. The honest truth is the fact of the matter is no world religion and no world and life view can give you a cute little answer for why suffering exists. All anyone can do is just recognize that it does exist. But what makes Christianity utterly unique is because while we may not know the origin of evil, we can know the destiny of evil. We can know its destiny. See, evil and suffering are here, yes, But God is doing something about them. A day is prepared for the future for when evil and suffering will be no more. So friends, it may be with us now, but it will not always be. And and the guarantee of this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Right? You want to talk about injustice. His was the greatest injustice. You want to talk about suffering? His was the greatest suffering. And yet, he was vindicated by God. And now, because he's been raised, it means that you and I, we will be too. And then the greatest suffering of all, death, will be defeated together with all other sufferings, 
All balances will be set right. All justice will be done. And Christ will rule in righteousness forevermore. Okay, so for us, we trust God in our sufferings at the time they incur. And also, we look beyond them knowing that our life is hidden in Christ. And it is not yet revealed what we will be when He returns and resurrects His people to an eternal rest. Alright, we're almost done. We've established God's goodness and sovereignty. We've considered our response of confidence and trust in God amidst our sufferings. We've seen that our hope doesn't lie in this world and the sufferings of evil that are present here, but they are in the future knowing that God will right every single situation for His glory and our good. So we trust God and look to the future. But what can we do in times of suffering? The answer may sound simple, but something we really fail to practice. The answer is we go to Jesus. We we turn to Christ. We pray to Him. We pour our lamentations humbly out to Him. We petition Him for help and even more for His his presence. In fact, go to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. If you're already there... Don't read it, because I'm going to read it, because I didn't write an end to that, and I just want to start at 10. Actually, I just probably want to read 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect. How? Through sufferings. What we're going to notice here is Jesus is such a great high priest Because he didn't deal with our sufferings in the abstract or the philosophical formula. He entered into our experience and suffered with us. That gives us confidence to approach him in our time of need, knowing that we will find in him one who can empathize and sympathize with us. And somebody read chapter 4, verse 14 for me. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Friend, Christ knows exactly what you're going through. He knows your pain in a very real way, for he has tasted willingly the worst of it all himself. No one, you know, we we almost, it's almost almost the worst thing to say, isn't it, when someone's going through pain, to say, I know exactly what you're going through. The situations are so entirely different. No one can say that nobody knows what you're going through, though, because ultimately, someone does. Jesus does. That's it. So so we can go to him with every fear, every disappointment, and every emotion. And what we find is a great high priest who can sympathize and give us mercy and grace in our time of need. One last thing. What time is it? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is so pivotal, guys. This is, in my lowest of lows, the the chapter and verse that not only, I think, solidified a call to ministry for our heart, but really helped me endure the lowest point of my life. Because when we turn to Christ, we also turn to the community of believers, the local church. Hear that. We turn in to the church when we suffer. Do you hear that? We don't, we don't go and get our lives straight and in order and then come to the church when everything's okay. We're not suffering anymore. 
We lean into the church in our sufferings. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. Someone read that for me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffered. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharing of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Okay, did you hear that? So, so look at this. When we experience suffering, when we experience trials, those sufferings and trials actually make us fit to comfort each other in the same circumstances. Has God comforted us in Christ as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? You ever been comforted by the Lord now? Has His rod and His staff comforted you? So now go, God, what, what happens now is now God is ready to use you, even in that scenario, to comfort someone else with His goodness. We are never alone here. We are a community of disciples who continually lean on and depend on each other. So here's what we do. Here's the application. We keep our eyes open and look for ways to comfort others the same way God has comforted us in the darkest of times. So, you, so you've been laid off. You've gone through an illness. You experienced the loss of a loved one. Have you found Christ to be your only hope and stay in those times? Then be on the lookout for others who are experiencing the same things. It'll be a big encouragement and strength for them to know that you battled the same thing and that you are ready and willing to go through it all again with them. That's all I got on this sheet of paper. I've, actually, I, that's not true. I've got eight, nine books in my footnotes that I was going to recommend to you if you want some books on this. Oh, they're there? Good. Mm-hmm. Hey, how about that? Did you put all the footnotes in there? I did. You're the best. BFFs. All right. <clears throat> Any questions, thoughts, comments at all? You have them, but you're going to save them until after we dismiss because it's past 730. You know that, right? I know. You guys are so Baptist. All right. All right. No, I get it. All right. Let's pray together. Father, God, your good and your mercy endures forever. Father, um, naked we came into this world, naked we shall leave. No matter what happens in our life, no matter what trials we endure, no matter what we go through, blessed be the name of God our Father. Our hope is in the fact that our great Redeemer lives and that He will, He will raise us up on the last day to have victory over sin, death, and every bit of suffering we face in this world. Thank you for the gift of the book of Job. I even thank you for the suffering we've endured, even though it hurts. And there's so many emotions that are attacked 
attached to that. Lord, I thank you for your comfort in the midst of those sufferings, that you don't waste an ounce of it to bring glory to your name and to be used to encourage fellow believers in Christ to depend upon our great and mighty God. We love you, Lord. Use this mightily in our charge to make disciples of all nations. What a book. What a gift. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.